The Bible begins with the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. Many of you have read the story before. God speaks, and piece by piece, in these beautiful matched pairs of things, he's taking disorganized chaos and emptiness and turning it into beautiful and good order. And the chapter ends by saying this. This is the first half of the last verse of Genesis 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There's two Hebrew words in the sentence that are really, really important. And it's the words that are translated saw and good. The Hebrew word for saw is ra'ah. The Hebrew word for good is tov. And so it says, God ra'ah everything that he had made, and behold, it was very tov. And if you're familiar with the story, you know this isn't the only time in this chapter where it says that. This is actually the final time, and it's the seventh time in the chapter that the author has said, God saw and said that it was good. If you're familiar with how the Hebrew people treated their numbers, then you know seven is the number of wholeness, of completeness. It's like the unity and complete number of something that's come to its fullness. So there's significance. Anytime you see seven of something, it draws your attention in. So what's the author of Genesis getting at by having us see this seven times? And the first and most obvious thing is he wants you to know that the creation God made is good. That's certainly there. But there's something deeper than that happening here as well. The author wants you to know seven times over and over again as God creates everything on earth and in heaven that it is God's job. It's God's prerogative, in fact, to look, to see, evaluate, and determine what is and is not good. It's the job of God to see and decide what is good. The story goes on in the next chapter. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a few things here that are so beautiful. First of all, the setting is significant. They're in a garden. This is what God creates. This is what he places humanity into. And then it talks about how he makes all of these trees. And the trees are good for food, but have you ever noticed it also says they're made to be pleasant to the sight. When you look at a forest, when you look out at like a vista of mountains and trees and it's beautiful and it stirs your soul, God made it that way on purpose. Do you know that? He wants you to like it. It's supposed to be pleasing to your eyes. So there's all the food you can imagine, and there's two trees in the midst of the garden. Have you ever noticed that before? Usually we only talk about one or the other tree, but the story starts by telling us there's two trees there. The tree of life, that in the presence of God you have access to the tree of life where you live eternally when you eat its fruit. And then the tree of knowing good and evil. That word good is tov again, the same thing that God saw and declared his creation to be. And the other word that's translated evil is the Hebrew word ra'ah. And it's interesting because it does mean evil, but it means actually something kind of bigger than just what the English word evil captures. When we say evil in English, it always has a kind of morality to it. And the Hebrew concept includes that, but it's bigger than that. It's just anything that's bad. It could describe a bad decision, bad fortune, something horrible that happened, chaos, devastation, or just foolishness. So the idea here is it's the tree of knowing what is good and what is bad, of knowing good and not good. And why would that be in the garden? Remember, seven times in Genesis 1, 
God saw, God said it's good. Now, God gives Adam and Eve amazing freedom, but with some boundaries, really just one boundary. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you have to imagine this setting, right? It's in the garden. Humanity is there. All of the trees with all of the food, they can eat whatever they want. They have access to the tree of life in the very presence of God. But they're also in the presence of a choice and a boundary. Who is going to determine what is good and what is evil? Authors spent all of Genesis 1 telling you seven times over and over again whose job that is. This is God's job. God says what's good and what is not good. But here Adam and Eve stand in front of a tree every day with the opportunity to take that matter into their own hands. There's someone else in the garden, right? Serpent. We learn later on in the story it's not just a snake, right? Who is this? It's going to be the easiest question I'm going to ask you all night. (laughs) It's the Satan. We learn later definitively in Revelation that this is that serpent of old is actually the Satan, the, the spiritual opponent of God and God's will and God's people. And he's in the garden as well. And he shows up in the very next chapter and enforces his will and his perspective on Eve. And he casts doubt on God's goodness and God's promises and actually causes her to doubt whether God loves them and is telling them the truth. He basically says, hey, God is actually holding out on you. He lied to you when he said you would die if you ate that fruit. You know what will happen if you eat that fruit? You'll know what God knows. God knows what's good and what's evil. He wants to be the one to tell you that. But all you have to do is eat that fruit, and you can know for yourselves. It's a famous story. We know what happens. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now again, there's some Hebrew words here that are really important. Some of you probably already noticed the first ones. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good. And yeah, those are the exact same two words that happened seven times about God in Genesis 1. God saw that his creation was good. And now here in Genesis 3, it says that the woman, Eve, she sees that the fruit is good. But then we get a new word added. She ra Ah, that the tree was tov for food. And then she lacha, she took of its fruit and ate. And in that moment, what we call the fall takes place and begins the downward spiral of chaos and rebellion and evil that has continued even to this day. And it starts with this moment of humanity looking and seeing and taking into their own hands the prerogative to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. Humanity looks to God and says, I will decide. My will. From this point on, man, once you have eyes to see this pattern, it jumps out in story after story after story. And it can actually be really hard to see even if you're looking for it in English because a lot of the time the words will be translated into like a better English word, but these three words occur over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And it's always in similar situations where you have a biblical character who's faced with the opportunity to either follow what God has said 
or cross a boundary and take for themselves the decision-making of what's good and what's not good. And this is just like a, a really short list, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but this is just a few of the places where you see this happen. And sometimes the authors will be clever and creative, and they'll like take one of the elements and kind of move it to emphasize something different in a meaningful way, but always it has that same resonance. When you see the saw and the good and the took in these stories, you're supposed to see the story of Adam and Eve laid over the story that you're reading with all of those associations and ideas brought to bear on it. So Abraham and Sarah, they're supposed to wait for the promise of God. And instead they take Hagar. And it talks about how they see that she's good. And in fact, in that story, it actually says that Sarah took Hagar and gave her to her husband. The exact same phrase that you see in Genesis 3 with Eve giving the fruit to her husband. So story after story, you see this same theme emerge. I'm going to show you just a few examples so you know what I'm talking about. This is the story of Achan. This happens right after the Israelites come into the promised land. They're under Joshua's leadership, and God tells them after they've destroyed Jericho, they're not supposed to take any treasure. Don't take any treasure. Don't take any animals. None of it. You're not supposed to desire it. You're not supposed to take it. They finish defeating Jericho. They go on to their next battle, and they lose, and they can tell something's wrong here. And so God says someone took something. And when he's finally confronted, when they cast lots to figure out who it is, it's a man named Achan. And it says, Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath." It says, he saw among the spoil a, in Hebrew, tov cloak. It says, beautiful in English, but the word is good. He saw a good cloak and he took it. This treasure is the forbidden fruit of Israel. They're not supposed to take it. A clear boundary has been set. But Achan, and taking all of Israel with him, he decides, I'm going to determine for myself what I can and can't take, what is and isn't good. And the consequences are disastrous. Here's an example where it's even harder to see. Later on, after they come into the promised land and they've established themselves, the people of Israel start asking Samuel, who's the judge of the land at that time and the prophet of the land, for a human king. And that's not something they're supposed to have. It's actually not even something they're supposed to desire. The God of Israel, Yahweh, has told them clearly, I am king of Israel. I'm your king. You don't need a human king. But they see the kings of the other nations around them and they say, give us a king. Give us a king like these nations have. And so from these two parts of the story of Saul being chosen, you have this incredible inclusion of these terms. And again, it's hard to see in English. But it talks about Saul's father, and it says, he had a son whose name was Saul. A, anyone want to guess? A tov young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more tov than he. The author wants you to see it. He even says it twice. Then in the very next chapter, it talks about how the people of Israel ran and Lacha took him from there. And guess where he was? I told myself I wasn't going to tell you this, but it's so, it's so awesome I have to anyway. Where Saul was, and the text doesn't even say why. He was hiding. He was hidden among the baggage. Does that remind you of anything? Where was Achan's treasure? Hidden under his tent. What did Adam and Eve do after they sinned against God? They hid from the presence of God. And they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. I'm totally fine with that part. And Samuel said to all the people, do you 
Ra'ad, you see him whom the Lord has chosen. There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Having a king is the forbidden fruit. And God has laid down a clear boundary. And all of Israel collectively says, no, no, no. Not what you say, what we say. We'll decide what's good here. After Saul, you know, brings misfortune on Israel eventually and he becomes a terrible leader, God chooses a new leader, David. And David is this incredible king. For the first part of his life, he like can do no wrong. He does incredibly good things. He unites all of Israel. And then suddenly, we have his horrible downfall. Very famous story. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. You guys can already probably see what's happening here, right? That he, ra'ah, from the roof, a woman bathing. And the woman was very what? Tov. Again, the translators are helping you. And I want to make something really clear here. I never want anyone to come away from a talk like this going, well, if I can't see the Hebrew word here, then what's the point of even reading it? You understand this story without knowing that that's actually the word for good instead of the word for beautiful. So you understand it. You know David's going to sin here. You know it's going to rip Israel apart. But once you see these extra details, it just comes alive in a whole new way. The woman was very good. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and Lacha took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. This is adultery, but if you're familiar with the story, you know it eventually gets even worse than that. It leads to cover-up after cover-up and eventually the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was a mighty man and a hero in David's army. So again, David has everything. He's the king. He's doing great. He's united the kingdom. But that serpent whisper comes in, and just like Eve, and just like Abraham, and just like all of Israel, he listens. So this theme happens over and over and over. Different authors, different books, different parts of Israel's history, they'll inject the same idea and point you back to Genesis 3 and say, look, it's happening again. The serpent continues to be victorious, even over the people who are trying to serve God. Time and time again, they're faced with the choice of obeying their will, what they want, or obeying the will of God. And over and over and over again, you see character after character after character say, I'm going to do what I want. And it always leads to ruin every time. If you're honest with yourself, you recognize that pattern in your own life too, right? How many times have you been in that metaphorical garden where you know exactly what God would have you do. And sometimes we're not sure. Sometimes we find out later that we made a mistake, but a lot of the time we know exactly what God would have us do. And we look at God and we say what Adam and Eve and Moses and Abraham and David have all said. We say, I'm going to choose. I'll decide what's right. My will. So it's profoundly significant when all of a sudden in the New Testament you have Jesus himself go out into the wilderness and face that same serpent again. 
The devil comes to tempt him. And Jesus, by the way, in the wilderness isn't surrounded by like a perfect, lush, beautiful garden where he can eat all of the fruit he wants with access to the tree of life. He's in the wilderness and just finishing up a 40-day fast. Anybody here ever done a 40-day fast before? Not a juice cleanse. 40-day fast. The deck is so stacked against him in this situation. And the Satan, the actual opponent of God, spiritual opposition incarnate shows up and tempts him. And Jesus succeeds where everyone else has failed. Over and over again, he meets the temptation of the devil with the truth of Scripture and stands firm. And he's victorious. But there's something that's so easy to miss that happens, particularly in Luke's version of the story. When the devil leaves, it doesn't just say he left. It says he departed to wait for an opportune time. Anybody ever notice that? He's not done with Jesus. He took this major crack at him in the wilderness. Didn't succeed, but Luke tells us he departed to wait for an opportune time. What might that time be? So after the temptation, Jesus goes through his entire life of of teaching and ministry throughout the region of Galilee and into Jerusalem, and eventually it takes him all the way to the night where he's betrayed. And guess where he goes on the night he's betrayed? And he guesses what kind of environment he chooses to go to? A garden. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Baruch Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples knew, or his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus goes to a garden. And who else is on the way to meet him there? Judas. Here's a deep question. What happened to Judas right after he left the Last Supper? Anybody know? Anybody enter into him? It says the Satan enters into Judas when he leaves the Last Supper. All the ingredients are here. You have the Son of Man, humanity's representative, the new Adam, and he's going into the garden to face the temptation of his life and the serpents on his way to see if he can take him out too. Now, while he's there and before Judas arrives, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us what happened there. That's a harrowing, horrible story, no matter how many times you read it. And they, this is Jesus and his disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, that's the name of the garden, means olive press. Hard to imagine a more appropriate name for the place where Jesus goes to do what he's about to do. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And depending on your kind of default understanding of what Jesus is like, what kind of behavior you expect from Jesus, this whole section of Scripture can be shocking. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is experiencing the dark night of the soul. He says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Mark says he's greatly distressed and troubled. Luke actually says that he's in such agony that he sweats, drops, of blood. So you have to picture Jesus. This is no like 
performative, I'm going to go here and pray, and then I'm going to go. Jesus is in agony. You have to imagine the King of kings, the Son of God, shaking and praying and begging to not have to do what he's about to go do. He's praying to his Father and saying, Frankly, and, and if you read the whole story, you know he kind of goes back and talks to the disciples and wakes them up and goes back. It's, it's, it goes on for a while. Jesus is aware of what's coming, the suffering he's about to endure. And he says, I do not want to do this. I don't want this. This doesn't look very good to me. And it's the same choice that humanity has been faced with over and over and over again. Who decides? Who decides what we do? Who decides what's good and what's not good? Time and time again, Adam, Abraham, Moses, all of Israel, David, Hezekiah, they look at God and say, I'm going to pick. You and me, we look at God and say, I'm going to pick. And now Jesus is faced with the hardest temptation imaginable. And something new happens. This is the very next verse. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I'm convinced that in a very real sense, that's the first time that ever happened. When it comes down to the big decision, the tension between what humanity desperately would like to see happen and what God has chosen, the Son of God incarnate as a man says, I don't want this, but it's not about what I want. Not me, you, not my will, your will. And the pattern's broken. And Jesus is going to go on from here to be arrested. That serpent is going to show up. And that serpent's going to think he won. Because Jesus is going to get dragged away. He's going to get treated to a, an unjust trial, an illegal trial that happens in the middle of the night. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be mocked and tortured and killed on a cross. And yet, for some reason, we call this Good Friday. Why? It's good for us. We needed a new Adam to go into the garden and say for all of us what we couldn't say for ourselves. Not my will, your will. And not just say it, but then go follow it through all the way to the end. And the beautiful thing about Good Friday, the reason why it's Good Friday, is because it turns out, despite what I think the serpent probably expected, the death, the innocent death, of the sinless Son of God turned out to be his victory over that serpent and over sin and over death itself. He goes where you and I deserve to go, where you and I wouldn't go, and dies on our behalf to create a way for you and I to come into life. 
And he does it because he loves you, the Bible says, over and over and over again. You want to know if God loves you? Don't look for him to draw it in the sky with clouds. Read this story. Contemplate this day. Imagine the agonies and sufferings of Jesus and remember that the thing that sent him there was his obedience to the Father and the desire of the triune God to restore relationship with his rebellious children. That's what love looks like. It's heavy, and it should be. It should be. That's why I, uh, be honest with you guys, when we were singing, I was like, I'm not even going to be able to talk when I go up there because to see so many of you guys out here for a Good Friday service was really powerful to me because this isn't an easy service to come to in many ways. It's hard. It's heavy. But we call it Good Friday because we come here to remember the great, immeasurable, ineffable cost that was paid in order for you to have a way to life, in order for us to be brought into the family of God. So we're going to do what we, we came here to do, in a sense, and remember together. And as we do, I want you to consider that pattern, that theme that plays over and over and over again throughout Scripture of humanity seeing, deciding for themselves what's good, and taking. It's what all the major characters in Scripture have done. It's what I do. It's what you do. We look to God and we say, I'm going to decide. I'm going to look. I'm going to determine. And I'm going to take, and I'm going to take and take and take. That's what we do. But Jesus, Jesus gives Earlier that same exact night when he was betrayed in the garden, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you it's the new covenant in my blood. So what is it that we're remembering tonight? Because it's a memory thing. This is a night for remembering. What happened 2,000 years ago? In the simplest terms, you actually have it right here. It says, when he had given thanks, what? He broke it and gave it to them. His body broken for you. His blood poured out for you. Remember this together. Let's stand and sing.